You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everyone and welcome to the February 2019 edition of our regular feature Ask Strong Towns featuring me, Kia Wilson, and you, Chuck Marone. How are you doing, Chuck? I'm doing pretty well. They, uh, I scheduled this dentist appointment for this morning and then they made me come back to this opening they had this afternoon. So I'm doing this between uh, teeth things, which, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm one of these guys who when they was a kid, in multiple ways, uh, smashed and destroyed like half my mouth. So like being an adult, I'm perfectly healthy. Like everything about like, you know, you go through like the cholesterol and the blood pressure and all that. Like I'm good. Got great genes that way. But I've like, I've like wrecked half the teeth in my mouth. So it's like one of those (laughs) mid forties. Like the patches they did in my youth are now all needing fixing, which is the, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's okay. We're dealing with some tooth problems in my house because the puppy is teething. And yeah, just yeah. before this audio, this webcast, I caught him chewing a signed book and I'm really mad at him. So. I was going to ask you, is it a, was it a good book or a book? It was. Book? Luckily, oh. it was a book of poetry. So like the parts he chewed are in white space for the most part. So it's still going to okay. be legible. I can finish reading it, but I'm, I'm mad. He has good taste. It's like a, a good small press. So, um, in any case, uh, I'm ready to get started to talk about something besides this. I want to talk about all things Strong Towns, and I want to tell our friends who are filtering in how to ask us some questions. We have some pre-submitted questions that we're going to hop through, but if you would like to submit a question live, if you look on your screen, there's a little button at the bottom, it should be, that says Q&A. That's what you want to click if you want to ask a question. There's also a button that says chat. That's for you guys to chat amongst yourselves and say like gosh Kia's hair looks great today Chuck is just said something really silly <laughs> you can go ahead and chat over there um, but we will not see your questions if you put them in the chat so go ahead and put that in the Q&A for us if you will um, besides that it's pretty straightforward you can ask us anything that's on your mind about how to make your town stronger what strong towns what the strong towns position on a topic is if you will um, you kind of hit us with your best shot. We would love to answer any of your questions. But I'm going to start off with some of our pre-submitted questions here because we've got some good ones. Um, Our colleague Jacob put this list together. First one comes from J.B. Hutch. And it's a little longer one, so hang with me here. We've been going through some serious parking debates here in Buffalo, I'm assuming New York, and it got me wondering about residential parking. I wonder if, like on-street commercial parking areas, residents should also be asked to compensate the city for the space their vehicles take up. Additionally, should visitors be allowed to take up otherwise free spaces on residential streets near commercial areas? I am curious to know if Strong Towns has any thoughts on residential parking permits, and if you've seen them used effectively or if there are any studies exist that exist so i'd love to hear your thoughts chuck um is one of the ways to fix our unproductive development patterns just to charge more for parking permits from individual residents let's talk about it yeah it's very interesting i have seen this done before um i mean obviously there's this tension between uh on, on residential lots between what is your parking and what is someone else's parking and my wife 
Uh, back when I drove the Honda Element, the it's an orange box looking car. Uh, my my kids called it a clown car, and my wife <laughs> hated the way it looked. And if I parked in front of the house, which I like to do because I like on street parking, um, she would beg me to please park in the alley so no one associates <laughs> your ugly clown car with our house. I bring that up because there is this certain sense amongst people that like the parking spot in front of my house is my, is my property is somehow part of like my space. And I, I get that. I mean, a lot of cities will assess property owners for those improvements. They'll make them pay for it, um, which is messed up in a bunch of ways. Um, but I get how, you know, this property in front of your place, you start to kind of claim. I think there's a there's a, there's an important um, kind of relationship that I want to bring up before we get into charging for parking for residential. Um, a lot of cities will build as part of their standard uh, residential street section. They'll build on street parking, which is really valuable and very helpful and 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 and, and needed in a lot of places. But then they will go the extra step and require off street parking. So if you have a single family home, you have to have two spots. If you have a duplex, you have to have four. If you have a triplex, maybe they'll let you get away with five, but, but you've got to have off-street parking. And even some places they'll say you have to have off-street guest parking. So not only do you have to handle, if you've got a, like a multi-unit building, not only do you have to handle your own parking, but you have to handle guests. It, <clears throat> it's really a strange world where we would charge people for on-street parking or, or spend the money on on-street parking and then like require off-street parking in residential areas where you just like, why are we, why are we doing this? Especially in single family home areas, it doesn't make any, any sense at all. It, I have ex seen and experienced places where they will um, uh, basically not charge like a, like a meter where you charge hourly but have uh, permits for what in a sense is overnight parking on a street. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to be here after six o'clock or eight o'clock or whatever, um, you have to have this like decal on your car. And that will be one way to kind of, you know, basically like reserve places that are on the street for people in the neighborhood. Um, the tension comes in and we see this, you know, in residential areas that are adjacent to commercial, you know, really successful commercial areas. Uh, they will put signs up that say, you know, residential parking only, uh, which is kind of this awkward thing because there is a certain, again, like decal kind of thing they'll use to, to designate that. Um, but ideally you wouldn't, you know, ideally you wouldn't, go down that route, right? Like you, you, if you're going to put in the public parking, you don't want it necessarily like sitting empty waiting for a resident. You'd rather have it used by someone. Otherwise it's just like an unproductive asset that's doing nothing for you. I, I, I think, I don't think there is a real like clear answer to this, you know, like what do we do in this situation? I think it's one of those things where you have to recognize that when you have this situation, it's a transition kind of process. Um, ideally, you're getting to a space where most people 
would not get in a, you know, in those transition areas would not need two vehicles would not be getting in a car every day for all the things that they're going to do. Um, and so that tension would over time go away. So I think if you approach it with that mindset, like this is a temporary thing and we're just going to have to figure out a fix that makes people happy, but we're going to have to review it every two years or every three years to make, you know, to update it and continue to change it and evolve. I think that's maybe the best that you can do. Um, what you don't want to do is lock yourself into some silly, you know, unproductive kind of approach, such as, you know, neighborhood parking only. And then the street sits empty sometimes during the day, just so the neighbor can have, you know, the person living there can have a convenient place to park whenever they want. And, you know, the, the parking sits empty. Otherwise, I, I think if you wind up in that situation, you're, you're, you're doing something wrong. So I, I would look at it as a transition and, there's not going to be an answer that will make everyone happy, but try to make it work and keep nudging it towards having the parking spaces filled and having people pay for the time that they're in there. Or at the very least have a development pattern that generates the money you need to maintain those spaces, you know? Um, I mean, I think that's really the core issue. Whenever we talk about parking is how are we, you know, if it costs this much for every single resident on the street to own a car, how can we make, you know, not owning a car a realistic option for the average resident, you know? So just a reminder that whenever we talk about parking, we need to think a little beyond parking. We need to think about corner stores and jobs within walking distance and cycling and all of those good things. Just to add but a lot of the, when you have, you know, thicker neighborhoods where walking is an option, people will move to those neighborhoods knowing that I'm going to have to pay if I want to store a car here. So I'm going to have to, to come up with that money to store it on site or to you know, pay to have it on the street or what have you. It's that transition area where you have a single family home and there's this implied kind of, this is my property, um, where you have this kind of tension. You know? So it, it really is to me, part of this thickening up of the neighborhood, once the neighborhood reaches a point where people no longer have the expectation that like I own this, like this parking spot is mine for free or mine inherent with this property that I purchased. Uh, the, the, equa the social equation tends to change. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So we got a live question here, which is a little different than our typical Astrong Town Spotter. It's not a hardcore intellectual question, but it's one that I think is great and I'm happy to answer it. Um, Dave Alden wants to know when we're going to announce where we're going this year um, for speaking engagements. He sees a lot of towns on that list, which are places where he's lived previously. And he just kind of wants to know when we put it out there, where we're headed. Also, he's wondering specifically if we're going to California. So might as well just take a minute to say, where are we going this year, Chuck? And when, uh, how did Strong Towns events work? I can answer that part of it if you want. Well, um, the, I'll answer the California thing. I just booked tickets to LAX uh, like this week. And I'm, I know I'm going to be in Malibu uh, and I plan an extra day. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with the extra day that I have. Um, yeah in the LA area, but I've got an extra day that I planned. Actually, I do know what I'm going to do with it. <laughs> Is it Disney? <laughs> oh, it's going to be yeah. my personal time. Got um, it. <laughs> but uh, but I, I know we're going to be uh, in California at least twice this year. Um, that being said, go ahead and why don't you talk about like how we are putting this stuff together and then maybe even talk a little bit about 
maybe when we'll be announcing things for the fall. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can tease it at least um, because we actually have sort of an exciting thing coming up in the fall that we have not announced to the full list. I can give members sort of a sneak preview. But um, generally speaking, the way that Strong Towns comes to your towns is you bring this there. You go to strongtowns.org slash speaking, an organization that wants our message to reach their community, their conference, their, you know, city council, whatever it is, flies check out there and he talks to them. That's really sort of the essence of how neighborhoods change, we think, is from face-to-face contact and meaningful conversations digitally through our content. So that's how our event program tends to work. Um, So all the things on our site are the ones that we are cleared to announce publicly right now. Um, Sometimes Chuck goes to towns for private conversations as well. So if our calendar ever looks thin, trust us, he is busy. We are busy. Our board member, John, speaks for us. Our content manager, Daniel, speaks for us. Sometimes I speak for us. So our staff is going all over the place. Um, The reason the fall looks a little bit thin is because we have a super secret mystery project that we are going to be telling you about soon. Um, I will just leave it at this. You will have an opportunity possibly to bring your town, uh, us to your town, in a little bit more of a different way than your typical conference engagements that Chuck is doing all over the country. So stay tuned, watch your email, get excited. I think that's probably the best way to answer that question. That's perfect. And okay. let me, let me just, let me dwell a tiny bit on the business side of this. Um, <laughs> the speaking engagement revenue is a big part of our overall revenue stream. When I go and speak somewhere, people will pay uh, not only our expenses to come there, but pay an honorarium of sorts or make a donation to the organization. And we actually use that money. That's about, I don't know, I think last year was about 35% of our revenue. We actually use that to fund all the stuff that we do, not only for the events, but, uh, but just in general, it's a big part of what we do. That being said, we always run into places where they call us and say, we just, we don't have the money, but we really want you here. And we try to look at those and say, okay, is this a group that we're, we really need to engage with? Um, you know, for us, there are a lot of groups that we feel our message fits really well. If you're running a conference and charging people 500 bucks a head to come in and you call us and say, Hey, we're too poor to bring you in. We're going to be like, yeah, we don't think so. Um, but if you know, you're a poor area and you're struggling to get by and you've got some issue that you need to talk through, we have a really good track record of figuring out how to make those happen. And sometimes it's like, we're going to be in the vicinity and we can come over and add an extra half day onto something we're already doing. Um, or sometimes we just go when we need to. So I always tell people um, we're, you know, part of what we do with the events is, uh, is raise revenue. But the biggest thing that we do is get our message out there and, and have a dialogue with communities. And so uh don't approach it as if money is the, the limiting factor. We have a lot of generous uh, members and supporters uh, and, and they're helping to make some of this possible too. Absolutely. And again, strongtowns.org slash speaking. And if you would like to win a Chuck visit, you can also enter your town into the Strongest Town contest. Strongest Town is um, the prize is a free live visit with Chuck Marone. So that's, that's one true. more way to get you, us. You're, you're promoting this like it's me. I, I realize that I do like the bulk of our events, but seriously, we, we have more demand than I can meet. And we've actually expanded this. John Reuter has been doing quite a few uh, we have you and Daniel scheduled and even Jacob, in a sense, depending on the audience uh, with capacity to go out too. So we're, we're, 
we're working on trying to meet that demand because we, we want as many people to be exposed to these ideas as possible. And the, the events are like a great way to make that happen. But no for, isn't our website uh, strongdowns.org forward slash events for like a list of all of them that are coming up. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll be announcing some of those, like you say, next month, along yep. with some other larger announcements of, of things yeah. that uh, we're going to have <laughs> come this okay. fall. We'll stop driving everyone crazy and go to a new question. Um, this is from the free submitted ones, but please do keep those live questions coming. Stephen Jacques, who always asks great questions, asks one here. I've seen big box chains build a quote unquote urban model of their store to fit into places like NYC, into those traditional development patterns where big boxes typically don't fit neatly. Is this the model a strong town should mandate or should towns refuse all big box development as a matter of principle? What do you think about that one, Chuck? That's a, that's a really tough question. That's become a, a little more ambiguous for me over time. Um, let me give you the one uh, kind of the, the one side of this answer. And that would come in dialogue that I've had from my friend Ian Rasmussen, one of our board members who lives in, used to live in Queens, now lives in Long Island, has an office in Manhattan, is very like New York City urbanist. Um, And he has argued quite persuasively to me that these types of places are invaluable. Um, He's like, this is what, you know, basically the pull of the suburbs uh, is sometimes this convenience of the big box shop or the convenience of the, uh, you know, the the delivery of whatever you need. And he said these kind of places are the kind of places that, you know, make people want to stay in urban areas. And when you get into even smaller urban areas, uh, having these amenities in the core downtown and in core neighborhoods, places where people can walk and get to, will keep them from, from having to have two cars and from having to move out to the one acre lot on the edge of town and from you know all those other things that, that are really uh, counterproductive. I think that's one argument. And I think that that's a persuasive argument that I'm, I'm not in my little town here looking to have Walmart downtown. Um, but if we had a drugstore downtown and even if it was a CVS or whatever it was, uh, there's some things that would be convenient about that. Right. Um, there's another argument though. And, and this gets into like the Stacy Mitchell conversation, which we had last month, which really gets into kind of the ownership model and the, the ecosystem that you're trying to create. And she makes a very compelling case, and, and I'll refer to uh, the, the, I think it was North Dakota, but it might have been South Dakota case of the pharmacies that she brought up, and how uh, in the state they limit the, um, you know, they, they have legislation that limits essentially uh, the, the size or the number uh, or the, the delivery mechanism of pharmacies, and, and they've done it in a way that requires there to be family-owned pharmacies or smaller, independent, non-chain, non-CVS, not Walgreens, not Thrifty, not Target Pharmacy. If you're in uh, North Dakota, I believe, you're going to be getting your pharmacies from, your, your pharmaceuticals from local family-owned pharmacies. And here's the incredible thing. Prices are lower. Uh, the service is good. There's, there's no, like, lack of uh, optionality that that we kind of have convinced ourselves are we have to have big box stores so we have this so I, I think it's an interesting question without a like well-defined answer my approach has always been 
I'm, I'm not a hater of Walmart. I'm not a hater of Amazon. They have responded to like our incentives that we've created. They've come up with a business model that meets our needs. If we don't like that business model, we've got to change our zoning codes, our regulations, our approach, our subsidy approach and all that. I do think part of that may mean in larger cities, you're going to have Home Depot and in Vancouver on the second story of a, of a, you know, a, a, a large tower building. Um, I think it's two full floors of one of the buildings in downtown Vancouver is a Home Depot. And you go there and pick out your stuff and they'll deliver your sheetrock to your house. And it's, it's kind of customized for what an urban setting is. Um, I'm not going to argue that that is a bad thing or that we shouldn't do that or we should fight against that. I do think when you get to, let's go to the other extreme, the very small end of town, uh, what you have is a kind of winner take all economic system where whatever regional city gets the regional big box kind of destroys not only the downtown of that place, but the downtowns of all the places around it. And, and that's where I think some, uh, some nuance in terms of size of building and in terms of like square footage uh, applied uh, to, you know, a particular shop to me, those kind of regulations make some sense and, and may make it so, you know, the big box store said it's not economical in our business model to go here. Um, I don't think that means you won't get toothpaste and toilet paper and, and ketchup. It just means it will be delivered differently to you. That's that really a, interesting. Does that make sense? It does. I'm a little surprised you answered exactly that way. I think for me, one thing I, I wonder about is I don't think that Strong Towns is inherently anti a store that sells a lot of things. <laughs> um, I think that a lot of the things that come with the big box model, we have recognized are bad for cities that they almost universally demand incredibly like fiscally unsustainable subsidies in order to exist, that they have these giant parking lots that, you know, they clear cut large areas or build on greenfield in order to build them in a way that is um, inherently not going to generate the wealth it needs to maintain, be maintained and that they aren't repurposable. Um, do I personally have an issue with the idea of a store where I can buy like socks and produce no <laughs> you know um it's about making right. it fit into the existing context like um i will also say as someone who i'm a landlord in addition to my work at strong towns we were doing our taxes the other day and trying to calculate our business mileage we went to home depot 115 times last year <laughs> <laughs> like literally um like some of these businesses actually kind of do need to exist and some of them need to be huge but the questions that we should be asking ourselves is how can we make it fiscally sustainable? How can we make it, um, or to use better language, more financially productive and able to produce the wealth it needs in order to exist? So just yeah, to the, add thing onto it. It's interesting because our downtown here used to have a Montgomery Wards, um, which basically was like the Amazon of its day. Or was it Wards or was it Sears? I think it was Sears. Same, same kind of concept, right? It was a three-story building. Every story was Sears. Um, you know, they had a showroom on the first floor on the second floor was a showroom. And then the third floor was like offices, uh, involved with the, the Sears. Um, you know, that was basically like the Walmart of its day. And that fit exactly into the, the downtown structure. When that Sears went away, that building got split up and cut up and used in many different ways. 
we just had the Sears close on the outside of town and far out on the edge. It's just sitting empty. And I, I see no, I mean, maybe it will be repurposed at some point, but there's a whole bunch of empty big box places out on the edge of town. I don't see them all getting repurposed and reused. So to me, the economic model internally can ebb and flow and change and adapt over time. And I guess I'm, I'm, I think there's some advantages to some approaches over others, but I'm less uptight about that than I am about is the land use pattern productive. Are we getting, you know, a, 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 an adaptable, flexible, financially successful kind of place that can withstand these changing kind of market conditions in a sense. I think that's great. I'm going to go to a question by Janie Meyer that's pretty specific. So I'm going to expand it a little bit because I think it's hinting at something that is actually quite important. Um, so Janie Meyer asked, what kinds of bi non-biodegradable plastic can be ground up and used to patch roads? Um, I would like to know from you, Chuck, um, when people, I get this question a lot, when we say like there are so many potholes on our roads, we can't afford to maintain them. I've had friends of mine say, well, why can't we just invent like a new techie solution, maybe a new material that we can use to patch it and won't that solve the problem? Why do we need to address the inherent financial um, instability of our road system? couldn't we just use plastic? So what would you say to that person? In addition to, if JD really wants some non-biodegradable plastic in his roads, can you think of one? I don't know. I, I'm not the engineer on the call, so I don't have to answer that part. Well, I've seen this before where it's like, let's grind up this and make roads out of it. Or let's, um, you know, make roads out of solar panels. Wouldn't that be great? And there's the, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm split because the, the stodgy engineer side of me looks at this and goes, are these people out of their freaking minds? Like, this is just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But then the like planner, non-engineer side of me says, you stodgy engineer would, would build the same road for the next 2000 years without any innovation and any change. So we shouldn't be listening to the stodgy engineer. We should be innovating. So let me give you the stodgy engineer answer. Understanding that there may be someone brilliant out there who comes up with something, um, but I'm going to give you the stodgy engineer answer why we don't just fill the holes with plastic or, you know, kiss, uh, smiles and kisses, you know, like, I, I, <laughs> why don't we do these things? Um, when you, okay, I'll give you like briefly roads. You have two types of pavements. You have flexible pavements and non-flexible pavements. A flexible pavement is like asphalt. Uh, we call it bituminous when it's mixed together with aggregate. And by flexible, what it means is that it will uh, expand and contract in hot and cold weather. It will uh, move and flow a little bit. And uh, it will, you know, over time, uh, kind of, you know, adjust, you get ruts and this kind of thing. Uh, a a non-flexible pavement is like a concrete. And concrete, you'll see expansion joints because when it expands and contracts, it cracks and falls apart. So they'll put the expansion joints in there. When you see potholes and cracks, what you're seeing in a flexible pavement, an asphalt pavement, is one of two things. Either the, the base underneath has gone bad. Um, you can think here in Minnesota, we get water down in there. In the winter, it, it, it expands you know, starts to basically pop that out in the, uh, you know, in the summer, it will contract when the water uh, thaws out. 
Um, and, and what happens is in the spring, especially you get like semis and trucks that come through and they start to hit those soft spots and they make it, you know, go basically it's like pushing on it and it will break apart. Um, without going in and ripping that out and fixing that base, anything you put in there is going to have the same thing happen. It's a, it's a function of like what's underneath. And that's really, really hard to do. I mean, you think of doing miles and miles of road. It's really hard to keep the water from, from, from making those kind of uh, damage to the roadway. The other thing you see though, and you see this in both flexible and non-flexible pavements is that over time um, they start to uh, just, you know, lose, basically they age and, and it kind of like your body ages and becomes more brittle. The asphalt in the roadway ages and becomes more brittle. The pavement becomes more brittle. And anytime it becomes more brittle, you're talking about it being more porous, more cracks, more water getting in there. And the water is what ultimately destroys it. When the water gets in, you get that squishy, that freeze thaw, um, and, and it starts to kind of break down and, and not work. I'm not as familiar, and I'll acknowledge like right up front, um, I'm not as familiar like the problems they have in Arizona, which are on a, like a different range of, of the spectrum. I've been to Florida. I've been amazed at how they build concrete roads and they've not all fallen apart because up here in Minnesota, they just go away after a certain period. They become really bad and they fail kind of catastrophically. Um, but I know in those areas, they still have an obsession with water. They still have an obsession with drainage and getting the water off the roadway because it's the water that destroys it. So you go in and fill those cracks with other things. Um, you're still going to have the same underlying problem. You're still going to have the same underlying kinds of failure. Asphalt is actually really good for building roads because it's what you use to seal things. And so if you look when they go in and they seal the cracks or they fill the potholes or they put a seal coat over the road, what they're doing is they're sealing it up to try to shed the water and keep the water off of it because it's the water that's going to wreck it. It's the same kind of concept as getting water away from your house. If you've got water dripping down the side of your foundation, if you've got water kind of in your basement, what you're doing over time is that water is going to like destroy things. That's the water is what's going to, you know, wreck it and make, make the stuff start to fall apart. So in a roadway you're trying to get, and there's no solar panel, there's no bit of plastic, there's no hugs and kisses that can handle that really better than just asphalt, you know, oil does because the oil will shed the water right off. You also have the other part of this where whatever you put on the road, cars have to be able to grip it. And not only grip it to be able to drive, but more importantly, grip it to be able to stop. And when you start putting polymers and different things in, um, you know, they've, they, they have a different kind of friction coefficient. And you, you, this is the thing with the solar panels that I found bizarre. Like, I, I, I don't see how you could have starting and stopping on a surface like that and have it function and perform the way that you would need it to, to have it be safe. So that's my like curmudgingly answer. There might be a non curmudgingly uh, <laughs> approach that would be better that I'm not aware of. But uh, if you talk to like your average engineer, that's what they're going to say. They're going to say all these concepts are ridiculous asphalt, you know, bituminous material. The asphalt mixed with aggregate is like the best way to, to, to make all this happen. And it's actually all things being equal, the, the cheapest way too. I mean, I'm sure there's ways we could do this that might be better, but not at the volume and price that we do it today. 
mm-hmm. understand too, and I'll, I'll maybe just as a last thought, um, in the refining process of oil, um, when we get a barrel of oil and you bring a barrel of oil to the refinery and it goes through this process of, uh, you know, turning it into gasoline, the byproducts of that are things like asphalt. So asphalt is like uh, the waste product of the gasoline refinery process. And so in a sense, we're taking, you know, a waste and, and finding like a productive use for it. Um, that's like the history of asphalt payments is that we're like, wow, we're throwing this stuff away. Maybe we could use this in a, in a better way. Good stuff. I feel like I just learned some things with that. Um, let's go to a question from Tom Milner. I think this one's kind of interesting. As cities make budget cuts, the decision makers often talk about the need to prioritize core services. What in Strongtown's framework qualify as core services versus secondary services, aka not absolutely necessary, but better than to have than to not have, tertiary services, etc. What's a core service in the Strongtown's lexicon? I thought that was an interesting thought experiment. It's a great question. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to I point out one thing. And I'm going to test this out on you, Kia, because I actually yeah. um, just wrote a thing. I want you to react to this. Okay. This comes from Andrew Burleson a few years ago, a conversation I had with him. And he pointed Strong out- Strongtown's board member, Andrew Burleson, people who don't know. So when you look at a private sector- organization, nonprofit or a for-profit organization. When you run in, when, when an organization like that runs into financial difficulties, what do they tend to do? They tend to cut staff mm-hmm. and retain their programs. And the reason that is because like the programs bring in revenue, you know, uh, you, you, it's, it's no good to have staff and not have any programs or capacity. Um, if you got to cut one or the other, you tend to cut staff and retain programs. So for like us, we would, you know, cut a person and continue to do the blog, continue to do events, continue to do this, but maybe not have the capacity to do all of them that we would want to do. When you look at governments, when governments run into hardship, governments tend to cut programs and not staff. Mm -hmm. They might do a hiring freeze. They might say like, we're not going to add anybody new. We're going to have this vacant position or this vacant position, but they tend to hang on to their staff and in turn, cut programs. So we're not going to maintain these three roads this year. We're going to put that off a year or two. We're not going to do this thing in the park we were planning on. We're going to cut that. But we're going to retain our staff. And what that does is it creates a really, um, a very different approach to hardship. One that gets you at this question of like, what's a core service? Um, as a function of the staff we have today as opposed to stepping back and saying, what are the essential things that the city does? If, if I were to take that bigger question, like what are the essential things that a city does? Um, I would prioritize, um, I know most people would say like public safety, and I think you've got to have a degree of public safety. It's hard to mm-hmm. argue that that wouldn't be, you know, public safety uh, response and capacity wouldn't be a very high one. Um, but I would prioritize, hyper, hyper prioritize uh, intense maintenance and particularly intense maintenance of your most productive areas. Yeah. Um, if you remember back to that Lafayette map where we show where the most productive places in Lafayette are, it's a core downtown and the poorest neighborhoods. 
Um, and when I, when I show that map, I, I generally say to people, like, these are areas that should never lack maintenance. They should be places where if a streetlight goes out, someone very quickly sees that and fixes it. If there's weeds in the, in the, in the sidewalk, they should be pulled. Um, if there's a pothole, it should be fixed. To me, if, if you, I know it's not a, 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 a perfect analogy to contrast like a business with a city, but it's easier than like if you say the private sector with like the federal government, which has different financial constraints. Cities' financial constraints are very much like a private business um, in terms of like annually, the, how their budgets are put together and the, the fiscal restraints they have. If you were a business and you had like five divisions in your company and one division was making you money and four divisions were losing you money and you came up into like fiscal hardship, what, what would you do? Well, you would make sure that the one division that was making you money was really, really taken care of. Because by taking care of that, you're going to ensure that you actually have as much revenue as possible to make good on the other four or to figure out what to do with the other four. Right. What we tend to do in government is let all five divisions go kind of equally. We say across the board, they're all going to get, in fact, oftentimes we put money into the unprofitable divisions because that's where the wealthy people who show up to the meetings to bitch are at you know, and the people in the, the poor neighborhood don't show up to the meetings and raise a fuss. So they actually, even though their neighborhood is, is very productive, tend to get the, you know, the short end of the, the stick in a sense. Um, and then in government, we'll tend to go out and start a sixth division that is a lot like the four unproductive divisions in the hopes of, you know, generating enough revenue to take care of everything. I think that if we're having a decision on essentially triage, we have a limited resources, what do we put it? Where we should be putting it is in the hyper intensive maintenance of our most financially productive areas. That, that would be like the number one thing yeah. in my list of triage. Totally. And figure out where they are is probably step one if you want to implement right. that yourself, which a lot of people don't know. Um, I'm going to go to a question by Stephen Buckley here that we just got live. My town government recently created a task force to address the declining population of young adults and children. But then I think to their credit, they decided to expand the mission to address all related issues, e.g. affordable housing, schools, what have you. Um, so Stephen asks where on the website we would point people to get them thinking about this through a strong town's lens. I think that we can bring up some articles in our answer, but I want to hear from you live, Chuck. Um, what should cities that want to address a waning population of young families with children do? What's the first step? I wrote, I wrote an article last fall uh, called Public Engagement is Worthless. And a, a friend of ours, uh, one of our longtime uh, members and readers, uh, Ruben Anderson, wrote a follow-up. It was Public Engagement is Worse Than Worthless. And we had this really kind of last fall, this very interesting discussion around public engagement. And my um, contention, and I, I hold to this, is really inspired by Steve Jobs, which, you know, we start a task force, we do focus groups, we do surveys, we go in and ask people what they want. And we get the answers that our questions anticipate, right? Um, a lot of times these task force are run by not the target group we're trying to get. 
right? They're run by people like me, not young people. Uh, you know, in my city, uh, we've got a comp planning group. I'm one of the youngest people on this comp planning group. If that gives you any sense of where we're at, I'm 45. Um, and we identified as keeping young people in town as one of our biggest challenges. And you go around the table and you start, people start talking about, you know, how are we going to keep these young people in town, kids these days, you know, that whole conversation. <laughs> and you're like, it, I feel like I'm closer to, you know, the youth in our community than other people on this committee. And I have to acknowledge, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think one of the worst things we can do, and this is going to sound kind of crazy, is to go ask them, to go ask mm -hmm. 18, 19, 20 year olds, like, what would keep you here? What, what, are you, what are you doing? I think what we need to do is go actually try to, uh, observe and experience their life as they experience it and use the, um, you know, in some ways the insight and the expertise that we have uh, to try to uh, understand and comprehend the life they are living. Oftentimes what we do is we interpose our life on them. And, you know, this is what I did when I was 20. So why don't they do the same thing when they're 20? Right. And, and, and I think in a corollary to that, they often impose their view on what is possible. So I'm sitting here at 20 and I, you know, why can't we do this and this and this? And I think that combination of understanding their life as they live it. So instead of saying, what would you like to see? Ask them, what do you do? Instead of saying, you know, uh, how can we make this better? Say, where do you struggle? If we get to those kind of questions, we actually start to understand wh wh where the friction is, where the rub is, what people are dealing with. Then I think we can take knowledge, expertise, experience, and say, all right, here's where we're identifying a struggle. Can we try this? Like, will this make a difference? Will this help? What if we did this? What if we, you know, try and, and to the extent that we can like go out and try things and see. Uh, I mentioned Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs has this kind of famous, and it might even be apocryphal. I don't know. I just like it so much. You know, this, this notion that if he would have gone and asked people what they wanted, they would have said they wanted a better Walkman. And you're maybe too young to know what a Walkman is, but I Walkmans, had a Walkman. Did you? Come on. Right. Yeah. I'm Walkmans my 30s. were super cool <laughs> yeah. in my day. And I had a Discman. <laughs> a Discman. My brother yeah, had a Discman and paid like 300 bucks for it. And he was, he was so cool. And it was this huge, it was just ridiculous. And Steve Jobs came up with, you know, the iPod Nano, which I had one right. of those at one point. And I'm like, this is divine. Like I, in my wildest, craziest imaginations, I never would have come up with this. But by starting with, okay, you like the Walkman, you would like a better Walkman. What do you like about it? How do you use it? Where do you have trouble using it? What are the struggles with it? He invented something completely new that addressed those right. issues. And I really feel like when we're talking about cross-generational understandings, and I would even extend this to cross-gender understandings, cross-racial understandings. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's a whole realm here of public engagement that we can do differently and more productively that instead of trying to impose like our understanding of the world and the questions we frame and, and, and the responses to actually try real hard to get at the struggles and, and observe people, 
and, and go f- use that as the basis point for where we go. I think that's such an important insight. And I think, you know, not, not to disappoint our question asker, Stephen here, but I don't think you will see an article on Strong Towns about like how to get young people to move to your town kind of thing, because young people are not all the same. Um, what you have to do is um, just like you're saying, Chuck, recognize that uh, you don't have the ability to ask the questions that you need to be asking, right? Um, Which it doesn't mean you don't listen to people. It means you need to listen to people more radically. You need to listen by not just giving off like a perfectly psychometric um, or what do you call it? Like the statistician, like reviewed survey um, that asks like the right things in the right order, but actually like observe a little bit, watch someone walk around their town for a day, you know, have those much harder and more rigorous sets of conversations that don't fit into our normal public public engagement processes and try a lot of things. It's inefficient, but it does a lot better. I think that's really wise. Um, Well, here I am sitting in a small town in central Minnesota and I show up to a comp plan meeting and some, you know, old lady pulls out, well, millennials these days, they like, <laughs> you know, and she'll start reading off of something she got from like Reader's Digest about millennials. And I'm like, okay, first of all, that is like a broad, you know, generalization of millennials. Second right. of all, the millennials that we have here are going to be a lot different than the ones in New York City or San Francisco. Yes. Let's go find out what our millennials here are like which is a, 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 a really different kind of, you know, uh, subset of people. And, 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 you know, if, well, millennials really like transit. Well, okay, great. That's not going to happen here. So what do the millennials yeah. here like that, that we, you know, like why are, I, I think like a big question for me is why is someone 23 year old here? Right. You know, like what, what is a 23 year old doing living in this city? What's a 25 year old doing living in this city? And I think if we understand that, um, which is different than you're going to get in an article from Reader's Digest or the Atlantic or Strong Towns, you're going to, you're going to start to know something actionable about your place, something really powerful. Absolutely. Let's go to a question from Rick Smith, who um, is asking about the mysterious City X. I think he doesn't want us to know. Um, So City X is an upscale suburban uh, place that is developing in a dense urban environment. However, it currently has a moderate amount of high-end, empty commercial spaces. Um, And they're subsidizing the development of a massive amount of new commercial space that will create he suspects a large amount of unrentable property unless we happen to have a dramatic increase in growth. It's the classic build it and they will come sort of model of development. How do you convince the public it is time for them to demand their economic development commissions and politicians quit digging? What do you think about this? Well, City X sounds a lot like Carmel, Indiana. <laughs> I know. We know Rick, but um, <laughs> I think Rick moved from Carmel. Park, no, I know. So but, I mean, even, if, even if we, similar, yeah. Yeah. It, it, even if we don't think of it like Carmel, there's plenty of places like this. Um, he, here's the, if the essence of the question is, how do I convince my neighbors that this is a raw deal? Um it's th- that part of it is really hard is is really really hard and it's hard in the sense that um you know you're living in a place where the outward signs of prosperity are there 
your kind of gut beliefs about what makes a place successful are being continuously affirmed and reinforced by the things around you. And the leadership is saying, hey, all is good, all is fine. Uh, you don't have to worry about any of this. And, and so what you're really talking about is how do you kind of get someone to swallow the red pill and see things in a very different way? Um, I, uh, I, I would like to think that Strong Towns, a steady diet of like our kind of conversation will, get, will, will help with that, will get you there. Um, I think the trick is though, the response when you, you know, do swallow that red pill and you do see the world differently. To me, the response becomes this source of tension if you want to stay in that place. Mm. Um, I know for me, I got to a point where I found it to be too much cognitive dissonance to live where my wife and I had built a house after we got married back in my engineering days. We, we just looked around and we're like, we could never, uh, you know, I could never convince like my neighbors to, to change this place. I could never convince everybody that what we're doing is wrong or bad. And, and I was in the government in that place, like serving on the planning commission and then serving as a city planner. And I was putting together reports and statistics and showing people like this is an absolute disaster. And the leadership in the community and the culture of the community was like, we don't care. We don't mm -hmm. care. And I got to the point where like, I can't live here. I have to go live somewhere where it doesn't create that much cognitive dissonance for me. So I, I kind of feel like if you are successful in say creating a small critical mass of people who are interested in this change, the, the most rational response for that group of people is to move to a place more consistent with what you know the world to be. Um, huh. And I, I, this is, you know, I think places like Carmel, uh, I think a lot of these suburbs, I look across town at Baxter, the neighboring city, which is like the highway strip commercial suburb. I think the next two decades are going to be very unkind to those places. And, uh, you know, we will be happy that we left them. And I think the big question is going to be, how do we deal with the turmoil and the difficulty that those places experience in a way that is like the most compassionate? Amen. And, uh, if you don't want to move, though, I might point uh, you towards Rachel Quidnell wrote an article for us a long time ago called What's Up With All Those Empty Storefronts in Mixed-Use Buildings, I believe. Take a look at it just to give you a little further reading on the off chance that you won't, don't want to or can't move. So I think as wise as, you know, just like get out and let it all burn kind of thinking is. Sometimes. Burn it to the ground. I yeah. know. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's, it's one of those hard things because I'm – I, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that even, you know, a, a significant percentage of this crazy landscape is going to be saved and, and, and retrofitted and reconciled with reality. Um, I think we're really going to struggle with that. And I mean, if you've got a city that's building dense downtowns and, you know, I, 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 I vision Carmel in my mind, they're trying to build this like, you know, uh, Italian, Rome-esque kind of, you know, court downtown. It's, it's, to me, they've got a great little natural downtown there that they could build off of, but they're trying to build this grand vision. Uh, will that someday be saved and be reused and reutilized? 
maybe you know you, you would have this one city out in the middle of nowhere surrounded by you know 400 roundabouts with no traffic like i, I don't mm-hmm. i don't get like the business model that would have this ultimately make sense is i guess my problem and yeah. you know we've gone back and forth about carmel i mean i i i grasp that their business strategy is to essentially uh make a mad dash towards trying to build this great solvent place that will attract everybody to it before everything goes to hell. I personally find that to be a silly strategy, um, but that's basically like their economic strategy. If you're a lesser place than that and are trying to do like a caramel light, uh, I don't see how you have, I don't don't see even how you could make that crazy case, you know? Yeah. Well, we have one more live question and I want to go ahead. Oh, Rick said nailed it. So he, he really liked your answer. Okay. Um, we have one more live question. I want to make it our last. If there's anyone else who is uh, got a burning question, you can always submit it at strongtowns.org slash ask dash strong dash towns. I wish those dashes weren't in there. That was a mistake on my part, but you're smart people. You're figured out. Um, This one is from Chris and Chris asks any advice when having discussions with state departments of transportation on altering their plans to widen a state highway that cuts through your town. Maybe the answer is move out of that town too. Let's all move. I don't know where we're going. Here's the the trick with the Department of Transportation is that they don't care what citizens say. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Project for Public Spaces released a great uh, workbook, uh, uh, I don't know, like five, six years ago about how to talk to your Department of Transportation. And Gary Toth wrote it and it's a very good book and it's very helpful. Um, but I will say that Departments of Transportation don't listen to individuals unless those individuals are mayors, uh, state legislators, or governors, or executives in the governor's office. Um, DOTs are very, uh, they're, they're oriented in uh, internally in kind of military chain of command kind of ways. So mm-hmm. they have their silos and their hierarchies. They've got a whole org chart that, you know, you have a boss, you report to this person, the reports to this person. And up at the top of that is the governor and the secretary of transportation. And so if someone comes in on like the bottom rung and starts to complain about this or that, they'll listen to you and they'll, you know, sympathize or empathize to the degree that they're capable of, but they're responding to people up and down this chain. That's, that's their orientation. And if you understand that, Um, what you start to realize pretty quickly is that the only way to intervene in a situation like that is to get your city council on board. City councils can do miracles with departments of transportation when they stand up and demand things. If the city council doesn't demand it or doesn't, you know, say like, this is unacceptable to us or this, it, it it doesn't matter what citizens do. It really, at the end of the day, it doesn't. There might be isolated instances where cities, you know, citizens have, slept up in trees or barricaded roads, or I don't know, showed up at meetings and thrown a big enough fit. But generally the only thing that moves DOTs is if you get your council members on board and the, the, the great thing would be to get your council members and your legislators on board. If you can get both of those, now you'll get the attention of the kind of chain of command and things will change very quickly. Um, but without that, it's really, really hard. 
because they're, they're, a, they're an entity of themselves and they're not designed to respond to individuals. They're re- designed to respond to this power structure mm-hmm. that they've set up. But power structures are made of individuals. So get organizing. That's my positive rah-rah sort of ending to this. Yeah, but okay. But I, I agree with you. And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not going to discount that there could be instances where that could be helpful. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, if you want to exert, ex- exert power and control over your own community, the, the mechanism that we have to do that in communities is through our local elected officials that that is the mechanism and for better or for worse i mean it would be great if like someone could show up and and convince the dot but understand okay i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna set this up in two ways we on one hand there's a lot of people who get upset when the dot wants to widen the highway through the middle of town and you know i can't show up and give my strong towns flow chart presentation and convince them that this is a stupid thing to do. Okay. So we get all mad and frustrated, but then we also get mad and frustrated when the DOT shows up and says, we're going to run a bus rapid transit route through here. And then like the two old codgers who don't want, you know, those kind of people riding by their house show up and they complain, they don't get the thing shut down either. You know, like that, that is not the thing that kills those kind of projects. So you don't want that one shut down because the two old codgers the same thing applies to you. Like you can be really smart, but you show up and it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. Those DOT decisions are made in a different place and they respond to a different set of, of feedback. Yeah. That's a really good point. So now that we've come down as firmly (laughs) anti-codger, I think it is ready to, yeah, just kidding. I'm a little codger a lot of the time. Um, I I think I'm, I know. Yeah, you're telling me. Just kidding. Um, it, thank you so much for joining us for Ask Strong Towns. If you have any other questions, we are always available at team at strongtowns.org. And I did want to plug also, we have this new spiffy new thing called the Knowledge Base where you can ask questions of not just us, but the entire Strong Town community, Strong Towns community anytime, day or night. And we do our best to translate that into real actionable content. It's help.strongtowns.org. And we really appreciate you tuning in. You will see a lot of your answers from this webcast show up on the knowledge base probably pretty soon. Thanks so much, everyone, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thank you. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, Bill, Bill. Bill, that's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, and once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.